Thank you for listening to the Austin Connection podcast. The Austin Connection is also a free newsletter and community on Substack. Check it out at austinconnection.substack.com. See you there. This is a story of a Black woman during this time frame who defies all the odds, but yet she's human. She makes mistakes, but she perseveres. And she is able to save generational wealth in the end for all the women of color that are in Demerara. Um, it's, it's a phenomenal story. All true. Even the, the six, six horse carriage pony ride in front of uh, Whitehall, that's all true. <laughs> wow, that's great. Author Vanessa Riley writes romance, historical mysteries, and more recently, historical fiction. And one thing Vanessa Riley seeks to do with all the stories she tells is to, as her website puts it, showcase the hidden histories of Black women and women of color, emphasizing strong sisterhoods and dazzling multicultural communities. Island Queen is all about the dazzling life of Dorothy Kerwin Thomas. Dorothy, or Doll Thomas, was a Regency-era entrepreneur who became one of the wealthiest people in the early 1800s Caribbean. She was born into slavery on the island of Montserrat and worked to buy her freedom and go on to become a wealthy landowner, leaving a legacy of many children and grandchildren, some of whom were educated in England, and she also had some interesting lovers along the way. This is the Austin Connection. I'm Plain Jane. We're talking with author Vanessa Riley about her historic fiction novel, Island Queen. Dr. Riley, who has a PhD from Stanford in mechanical engineering, by the way, has always found romance to be, as she says, a happy place. And she was first inspired to find women of color of the Regency and colonial era Caribbean when she came across that Jane Austen novel fragment we know as Sanditon. Jane Austen's biracial heiress of the West Indies, Miss Georgiana Lamb, started Vanessa Riley on this journey. We began by talking about how she went from a doctorate in mechanical engineering to writing romances and what attracts her to romance writing. Her answer took her right back to her student days. Here it is. What attracts you to the romance genre? Um... The promise of a happy ever after, and you need that after you take a test for differential equations. <laughs> yes. Is this what got you through grad school? Yeah, yes. At undergrad is actually when I really started uh, reading every signet romance known to mankind because they were nice and quick and bananas. The plots were all over the place. Um, and it was just something different to do. Um, you know, uh, engineering programs can be very intense levels of physics that you're taking, the different uh, orders of mathematics. And sometimes you just want something that you know the ending, that you don't have to integrate under a curve. And <laughs> you, uh, you just want to be assured of a happy place. And romance has always been that happy place. All right. So yeah, you so you like the structure. Um, but a lot, you know, you have read at least a little bit of Jane Austen, I know. Very much uh, Okay, very much so. So that courtship plot, you know, a lot can happen within that courtship plot. Do you find that you find intellectual challenges within that that might be surprising to people who don't know the romance genre? For those who don't know the romance genre, writing romance is actually hard. Um, romance gets 
a really bad rap because they say it's formulaic. Well, it's formulaic because that's the promise that they've given to the reader. That's the only genre that you can pick up and guaranteed to know that it's going to be safe. It's a happy ending. But how you get to that happy ending, how you vary your character's tasks and goals and and relationship status and an emotional journey, that is what makes it exciting and different. And that's why there's no two stories that are the same. Uh, That is the, that's the, the fun of it. But in order to be that, to give people something different every time, you have to be extremely creative. Um, and my friends who write romance, I write romance. These stories are just all over the map. They're different. They're engaging. You, there's something for every. Well, I can say that now there's something for everyone. Yes. Before that wasn't always the case. Before that wasn't always the case. But it's it's actually a difficult animal. And I find a lot of great writers start writing romance because once you can deliver how these two unique individuals are better together uh, in a plausible way, uh, and then you've taken them on a journey, you have the basis to write other uh, types of fiction. So it's it's a great training ground to be able to write romance. Well, you, you know, you know who would agree with you is a great genre writer named Stephen King. <laughs> I think we're finding that genre is harder than has been previously thought, like you just said. Did you struggle to get it right? Did you feel, did you kind of take it on as a challenge? Or do you feel like it kind of came naturally for you because you just wanted that HEA and you just figured out how to get there? The plotting has always been, I would say, my strength. My mother didn't allow a lot of different types of books in the house, but we had Shakespeare, we had Wadsworth, you know, we had all these different types of things. Um, And so I would kind of junkie out on TV and I would rewrite episodes of Dallas. I would do these different things. Yeah. Um, not, not everybody, not every kid is doing that. So there's not something every kid that's innate. That, but I used to entertain, entertain my, my, my brothers by coming up with these little stories and they would be, you know, different variants of TV shows or something that I wanted to change the ending because it wasn't happy. JR, you know, realized that Sue Ellen was great. <laughs> And they got back together and lived happily ever after. And he stopped doing all these bad things. Um, so, so you learned uh, you learned plotting from Jr. and Sue Ellen, mm-hmm. <laughs> cool. and structure from Shakespeare. So there we go. It's the perfect match. All right. Yes. <laughs> what attracts you um, to the Regency period specifically mm-hmm. and Regency stories? I think I I think because of the the nature of the books that my mother made sure that we read. Um, I have an, an, an older voice or such. It, it's this, these worlds always fascinated me. I am a history buff. Um, another degree I almost got uh, was a, a, a minor in history when I was in at Penn State. Um, it just Western Civ particularly was extremely interesting from the foundations of the world, um, traveling through Roman, uh, Roman civilization. All of this was just I was geeking on it. I, I loved it. Um, and then when we get to the romanticism periods um, and, and uh, I stumble upon this author named Jane Austen and I'm reading it and I, I love Pride and Prejudice. And then we get to Mansfield. And I'm like, ooh, she's got a little political streak going on in here. <laughs> um, and then I get to Sanditon and the wealthiest woman in the book is a mulatto woman from the West Indies. Mm-hmm. My father's from Trinidad and Tobago. It just, it made, to me, like, I was like, oh, 
the skies open up. It now makes sense why I'm here um, to, to tell these stories. And, and as you do more research and you realize how big the Caribbean part of the narrative of this time period is and how it has been completely obliterated um, or, or obscured, it just makes you say, where are my people? Uh, where are, where's the representation? I mean, all the economies of the world, 80% of the, the GDP is coming from the sugar trade, right? The sweet sounding sugar trade, but that's all the uh, stolen labor from the West Indies that is making sugarcane and rum and indigo and cotton and coffee all from all of the colonies in the West Indies. And yet you read romance, you read a lot of historical fiction, and this is not mentioned. You will get the heroic Duke, but you won't learn that his generational wealth is coming from habitations in Santo Domingo or plantations in Demerara. And you forget this piece, you know, Jane Austen, we think of her as historical. She's a contemporary writer. So she's writing what she saw during that day. Yeah. And when you get to this Miss Lamb, you realize that West Indian girls and boys, particularly biracial ones, are being sent to London and Glasgow and, and uh, Ireland for education because mm-hmm. everyone understands education is going to make the difference in your socioeconomic backgrounds, it's going to change the world. And they're sending their kids there. And so with this, this mixing and mingling happens, but none of that is recorded. It's very scantily recorded. I, I love it that you bring up the Jane Austen and the Sanditon, which I know was an influence for this book, Island Queen, a little bit, and, and just an, an influence for your research. But you just mentioned something. I mean, it is amazing. Jane Austen shows us the foundations of the economic underpinnings of Britain in her world. And she also is showing us the debates going on, but she's doing it so, I feel like she's doing it so subtly, but she did introduce Miss Lamb. It's such a shame, tragic that we don't get to see what she did with Sanditon, but at least we got that much. At least we know that she was bringing in this character. I love it that you say that Miss Lamb is the wealthiest character in the novel that's left out. And what strikes me, what I wanna know, um, Dr. Riley is, uh, before we get into the life of Dorothy Thomas, this one uh, woman that you're exploring and the life of through Island Queen, what are some of the things that you've learned about free women of color in colonial Caribbean era? That they, one, they exist. Um, because when I started doing research, I just had a concept of Miss Lamb. And I didn't really understand whether, you know, the debate was, was Jane just being progressive? Because, you know, abolition during this time frame is a very hot topic of conversation. Her brother is uh, an abolitionist. Um, he's he and, um, uh, but he's, she's got friends and, and I believe a couple uh, distant relatives or brother-in-laws that have married into people who own plantations. Mm-hmm. So she's getting both sides of the, these arguments. Is this just a pro- an author being progressive, trying to attack, subtly a social issue or is she more telling what's happening of her time frame so i go on this search and i literally find dorothy kerman thomas because of a sketch that uh the cartoonist editorial cartoonist uh, gilroy draws 
um, I find this picture of Prince William Henry, future AKA future King William IV. He's lovingly embracing a black woman. Now that is, is in itself is, is, is remarkable. You have a person in the aristocracy and he's um, in, in an affair with this black woman, but the black woman herself is unusual because this particular artist um, is very much an ist. He's a misogynist. He's a sexist. People just keep filling in all the ists. He checks all the boxes. Hmm. When he gets a chance to draw women in his cartoons, he makes them look desperate and homely and garish or scheming. They're the butt of the jokes. When he gets to draw a black woman, oh, he does not hold back. So he's going to take every stereotypical punch he can. So you've got big noses and crazy outfits. And, and sometimes you'll even see where he makes them speak in broken English of mass of this, that, and the other thing. Hmm. But in this picture, the woman is drawn beautifully. So she's not the joke. She's the tattle. He hmm. is saying, this is what your prince, the sailor prince, the one who's commanding frigates, uh, this is what he's doing in the West Indies. And unfortunately, women are very poorly documented in history. We very, we're very lucky to have Anne Frank's diary. You don't often come across these. Even Queen Victoria's diary has been edited and sanitized so that we don't see some of the things that happened after her beloved Albert passed away. So I, I had to follow the rich man. I followed <laughs> Prince William uh, and I find him in the West Indies and his boys and they're kicking it up and breaking brothels in Jamaica. Break, they broke up one so badly they had to pay for it the next day. Wow. Um, he is, is acting a literal fool in every port he comes into until he gets to Dominica. When he gets to Dominica, he's different. His friends are writing letters saying he's with that woman again. That mulatto woman is a handsome woman. And then I finally get one that says uh, he's dancing with Dorothy uh, Kerwin at the Mulatto Ball in Rousseau. So I finally had a name. And I thought this was going to be another obscure thing. But then you start researching and you find Dorothy Kerwin Thomas. Her will is archived in the UK. Mm -hmm. Why would a Black woman's will be archived in the UK? And you keep reading and then you find... Uh, that she's opened businesses in, in Demerara and, and in Granada and in Russo Dominica. And then you find uh, she's had these children. Now, that was another thing. Our reproductive mm. history as a woman is our history. So pinning down that she's had uh, children in Maserat, she's had children in Demerara. She does ch so we're talking about over a thousand nautical miles between these. Little what would make a woman move? Particularly the move when she goes from Dominica, where she has a successful business, to Granada. What's making her move? And so you get these, these unwinding of these stories. But this woman is phenomenal um, that she's able to just restart her life uh, in these various colonies. She does it with children. Um, and she's very protective and caring about these, these children. Um, and then in Demerara, you find a whole group of women, which I affectionately call the entertainment society, of these women of color who have uh, made their money through entertainment. So they're, they're through housekeepers, um, through um, cooking and cleaning, uh, general huckstering, which is the, the taking of, uh, of selling goods made by protect, per, um, enslaved peoples and selling those to visitors to the, the colony at, at higher prices and whatnot. Um, and she just builds this fabulous life. And she, she, it, it's just amazing that we don't know her name. 
um, because she was famous during that day. I've, I found uh, things saying, or for, uh, uh, secondhand accounts of her saying, oh, I just saw Doll uh, Thomas in Glasgow, Scotland with her 17 grandkids. Some of us have struggles taking our kids to Walmarts in the backseat of our <laughs> minivan. <laughs> and she's taking 17 from yes. Demerara all the way up to Glasgow, Scotland. Because she's this, this world of money that she has op- that has opened up the world to her, she wants her grandkids to see this and to feel this. And she's paying for the education of these children. And she's opening, she's funding schools for the education of colored girls in London. I mean, this is an enormously fabulous woman who rose against all kinds of odds. She was enslaved. She bought her freedom. She bought the freedom of her family. She made it a mission to whenever she could find family, she would buy their their freedom. For her to be completely wiped off the books, to me, blows my mind. Well, let, let me talk to you a little bit about all of this in your stories and writing romance. So when you're you're writing the life of Dorothy Kerwin Thomas, so now what is it like to put these, you're you're writing the courtship plot in with with a setting that involves colonialism and violence and you and Austin also <laughs> introduces sort of assault um but the stakes are higher for your heroine when you're writing in colonialism and colonial Britain Demerara it's more violent it's more oppressive um what what is it like writing a romance within those because this is something that's kind of new territory right well this is this is more of a biographical historical fiction okay that has romantic elements. Okay. You're dealing, I'm writing her real life. Um, there's no guarantee of, of a happy ending when you write real life. Um, and so that kind of throws that construct out. But at the same time, these men, as I did the, the history, they are important in her, um, in her life. Uh, they change things, they shape her. Um, she has to grow past the problems that they also bring to her life. Um, and there's a thing that I know as, as an author that I introduced in here is there's a concept that a black woman during this time frame was not desirable, was not, um, something sought after, wasn't precious. And I really want to defeat that myth because everything that I see is when two people find each other, they find each other, regardless of time, period, space, race, et cetera. And so as I looked at the challenges of these men, like um, I wanted that to convey across because Dorothy to me was someone who lit up a room even when she was poor, before she had money. There was something about her that drew people magnetic personality that drew people, men, when everybody was drawn to this woman. And I wanted that to be conveyed um, because, I, you know, there were debates. Where do you start the story? I started, I start the story with her. It, she's, uh, she's older. She's at one of the schools that she's funding, kind of like the Oprah version. <laughs> yes. <laughs> the Oprah, the Regency. Um, I, I started there because it's safe. 
that even though I'm going to take you on her journey, you know that she's, she already survived. So no matter how hard it gets, you're comforted to know that she's found a way to survive. I have romance readers coming to me reading my, hist my first historical fiction. I wanted you guys to feel safe because that's not what you expect, as you were saying, in a romance. Mm -hmm. And so I wanted to make sure that you get the concept that these men are in her life for a reason, but she chose the reason. Mm -hmm. Some of it was trifling. Dorothy was not a saint. I will tell you that right now. She was not a saint at all. Uh, because that often happens with, particularly for, to Black women, when you do something extraordinary, you all of a sudden are superhuman. You never feel pain. You uh, can vanquish any enemy. No, Dorothy was very human. She felt a lot of pain. She went through a lot of suffering, but she had a will to survive that I, that I haven't read about in a long, long time. And I wanted that to be conveyed. And I wanted her, you to see moments where she is being treasured, where she's being sought after, because I believe that's the type of personality she had. So you get, I get to use all my romantic bones to build this story, to make it convincing so that you will feel her heart breaking when her heart really breaks. You mentioned um, the presence of love and joy in Dorothy Kerwin Thomas's life and other Black lives from history. Um, can you talk a little bit about love and joy and the need for those elements in these stories and the lack of them in, the, in some of the stories that people sometimes expect? Yeah, um, you know, typically when you think of a, a, a story that touches on enslavement, um, you think of the darkness of that. And that should never be discounted. Uh, one, you know, one person asked me, because there's a part in the book where Dorothy is forced to, um, in order to be a member of society, in order to not get pushed out of business like everybody else who's objected, she had to turn to owning slaves. Um, it was to maintain her seat at the table. I firmly believe this is one of her wrong decisions. Um, I think it one that she wrestled with, but she justified in her head that it's better for me to have a seat at the table and to make sure these people are protected um, than not having a seat. And other people could be run out of business and you know they may go to debtor's prison. A black person during this time not only wouldn't go to debtor's prison, but they could possibly be re-enslaved. And I do believe that's the one, that's the one line she would never cross. She never wanted to go back there. So she did whatever she needed to do. But somebody said, why didn't you just leave that out? You could add it because the book is kind of long. You could <laughs> let that go. Um, no, if I don't want history whitewashed, I cannot whitewash history. And I also want to make sure people don't saint, deify, make these women who are doing extraordinary things into something they weren't. They were practical women. They were smart, but they were also human and foilable and and they could do wrong things. They can do stupid things. They could do things on the, on, the, on the spur of the moment. They had agency, but they still had a soul and still could do things wrong as much as they could do things right. And I don't want to paint this false image, but what often happens is you get stories that are just focused on the pain. And there's even a moment, sometimes there's a momentum what we call pain porn. Mm -hmm. Uh, people want to include the enslavement story in their stories because they want to show 
how their character survived or they want to show people coming in and rescuing the poor slaves and giving them it's pain porn right um there has to be a reason why you show the violence and in my world for me because i'm i am coming out of the romance uh, i am in part of the romance community um I want my people, I want my readers safe. So that's why I show you they are safe. They, they survived. So as even I show you darkness, you are going to be protected. You're going to be okay reading this. Dorothy made it. You can read through this and get through the, the hard parts. But then I also balance the hard parts with the joyful parts. When she's with her children, when she's taking these fabulous trips, when she's dressing the moment where she dresses her girls and they go to this fabulous ball in 1810. Um, that is a moment um, that I think cannot be glossed over and it needs to be shown because there's pride in that moment. There is joy in that moment. And she's sharing that moment with her girls, which I think just speaks to who this woman was. And so there's not enough black joy. That's why I'm a, a big advocate of black romance, a big advocate of romance in general, because you just need to be safe and happy ever after. And I'm just so thankful that now Happy Ever After includes everyone. This is the Austin Connection. I'm playing Jane. We're talking with author Vanessa Riley about her historic fiction novel, Island Queen. It chronicles the life of Regency-era Caribbean entrepreneur, Dorothy Thomas. Dorothy Thomas's life is fascinating and involves a lot of words you normally don't associate with women surviving under colonial oppression. Words like entrepreneurship, agency, manumission, wealth, power, romance, and perhaps the most important three words of all, happily ever after. In this next part of the conversation, Vanessa Riley talks about how she went from being a math major, then an engineer, to being a writer. She says, if you love writing, that doesn't leave you, no matter how many degrees you have. Now back to the conversation. What about, can you tell me, um, Dr. Riley, a little bit about your background? My father's from Trinidad and Tobago. My mother is from South Carolina. Um, and so she, we trace our, our roots back to very Irish roots um, in Trinidad. I mean, in, in South Carolina. Um, and, uh, you know, it's, you know, for the most part grew up as uh, my mom, single parent kind of thing. Um, I was gifted in both mathematics and writing from a, a very early age. And my mother sat me down. She was like, I know you've won some awards and things, but darling, you always have to pay your bills. And at the time, you know, it was like lightning striking for to see a woman of color um, writing books and, and being able to do it as a full-time thing, you know, that, so I went the math route, um, and I did it very well. And I, you know, I got several degrees from Penn state university, my doctorate and a couple of another degree from Stanford university. Um, and she was absolutely correct. Math does pay the bills. <laughs> point that point blank. Tell all your friends. Well, <laughs> and it'll allow you to do what you want to do, maybe, you know. Exactly. That's awesome. But when you have a hunger for writing, it doesn't go away. Um, and I don't care how many times you get published in technical journals. It just does not quite the same. Um, but from the engineering side, I think 
that fuels my questions of how and why, you know, how does something system work? Um, why is the clothing like this? Uh, how is it made? Because those are the layers I like to bring to my story so that you can, I want to, I want you to be there. Uh, you don't have, you're spending time in my books. I want you to feel like you're there. I want you to feel the atmosphere. I want you to smell the smells. I want you to walk in these people's shoes. Um, and to do that, you've got to really know those worlds. And so I've, I've done an exhausted amount of, of research between 1750 and 1830. That's my, my happy playground. Um, and I, I want to bring that to you. So it's a marriage to me in my head, makes sense, total sense up here uh, of the engineering side with the writing side. Do you have any thoughts? Um, I, we've uh, talked with Gretchen Gerzina, who's a scholar who has written books like um, Black Victorians. Have you followed those sort of scholars unearthing Absolutely. these stories? Gerzina's have... work is amazing. She was one of the first uh, books to really sink in um, and see the, the, the different stratifications uh, in society. And you learn some early names of people who've, who've opened businesses um, that lead you in different paths to figure out where people are, are moving towards. Um, but the West Indian aspect, it's alluded to in a lot of these different research, but it's, it's not really sunk in, um, at least not to the level it really needs to be. Um, the complexity, the, the, the revel of manumission, freeing of black women in the West Indies is, is higher than any other place. It speaks to the environment. It speaks to this unique level uh, that you don't see in, in the Americas. You don't see in other parts of, of Europe that is different. So there needs to be a, a bigger study on what's happening or what happened during that time frame. Yeah, it seems like there's such an opportunity to to keep going, keep digging, and and that's just going to be exciting to watch. So those those that scholarship is uh, something that you're watching is inspiring you. You mentioned you know you had the question: Was Jane Austen being progressive, or was she simply just describing what she saw? Are you any closer to an answer or to an opinion on that? I believe she's describing what she saw. I believe that there was a Miss Lamb. The, the movement between the colonies and in England it was, was very, um, very active. So I believe she probably saw someone who came from the West Indies who uh, was endowed with money. And one thing that my research has told me above everything else is money trumps race. It's, it's, it's the, they're always now that doesn't get rid of the, the issues, doesn't get rid of the conflicts, but it's just enough for people to forget so that marriage contracts are signed and things happen. Money trumps race. If there's one thing, I like the way you say that, money trumps race, it's a, it's a leveler in a way mm -hmm. too. And if there's one thing that I feel like in all, all my rereadings of Austin, and I'm not a scholar, I'm a journalist, but if there's one thing it seems like Austin is always doing is upending our established notions of things. And she's sometimes leveling us with money. A lot of times she's leveling things with intelligence. So you end up with Mansfield Park. Um, my recent post uh, is called Mansfield Park Horror Show. Taken in light of Miss Lamb, taken in light of books that we know that Austin may have come across like The Woman of Color. You know, it's possible that she knew about Dido Elizabeth Bell. Mm -hmm. um, 
it's very possible she went read the woman of color um that that version of that you know um regency era early 19th century tale so i guess all of that to say um do you what did you think when you encountered mansfield park and do you think that austin might have been as in addition to i don't want to give her more credit than she deserves but in addition to describing what she saw maybe trying to level people's preconceived notions and make this uh, make us think differently about a a woman of color in their midst mm -hmm. i i think not to speak for austin but I think there is a sense of moral indignation that comes through, particularly through Fanny. And I believe that as the world is opening up and they're wrestling with this notion of abolition and she's seeing what her brother is doing and she's, she's hearing the horrors, but she's looking at what's being written and other than abolitionist pamphlets, it's not really populating into the, the fictional world, the, the, the literature that's that's available. I think there's her way of fighting back of, or at least letting the subject be talked about in a way that is reasonable um, because it's one of those no-no conversations. Um, so many times now when I read books and I see the hero has to go back to the West Indies to handle business, that typically means that his plantation has is going under. There's a problem. Um, there was a lot of absentee management because the funds that's generated from these plantations is supporting their lifestyles. They're getting their mail field townhomes. They're they're doing all these sorts of things, and they only go back when there is trouble. When they have to go sort things out or hire new drivers or or you know buy more slaves, et cetera, et cetera. Um, you read it with a new eye that what she's really saying, uh, you know, when, when Sir Tom has to go back to fix problems, she's doing this in a way that I think is, this is what I can get away with saying, but I can have the conversation and I can make people have this conversation, even though it's uncomfortable. Um, and she's doing it within what agent she, ha she has through, the, through this story. Thanks for being here with the Austin Connection. This episode is with author Vanessa Riley. She's known for period romance novels featuring, as her website puts it, hidden histories and dazzling multicultural communities of women of color. Her latest book is historical fiction, Island Queen tells the story of Regency era Caribbean entrepreneur, Dorothy Thomas, a real woman of color who was surviving and finding a lot of romance in the colonial West Indies. I may have buried the lead here, by the way. The novel has been optioned for the screen by, wait for it, some names you may recognize for their work on this little Netflix series known as Bridgerton. Bridgerton director Julie Ann Robinson and actor Adjua Ando, also known as Lady Danbury, have teamed up with producer Victoria Fee to take Island Queen to the screen. Dr. Riley also talks about her journey as a writer and how racial diversity in publishing seems to be more open to stories about Black women, but it's taken a while. Here's the rest of our conversation. What is the state of um, racial diversity in publishing now for readers and writers? 
from a reader's perspective, it is great now to see more diversity, um, more stories for everyone. Because now that there's, it feels like there's a story for everyone. And that was not always the case. As a writer, it's great not to be the one that's boosting the data points. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, they have that one writer who's doing X, Y, and Z and oh, she's got three books this year. So that'll help boost our points. <laughs> it's great not to be the only one. Uh, uh, for certain houses, I, I was, uh, or with, within the historical space. Um, and there's a tendency to think, oh, we've got that covered now. Yes, there very much is. And so there's been a bit of a, I wouldn't say a sea change, but it feels different this time. You know, um, something happened, something changed. And unfortunately we can trace it to George Floyd, this realization um, that love is love and love is available to everyone. Um, you, 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 feel, you feel the opportunities there. Um, prior to, I mean, Island Queen was sold before George Floyd. And I credit that, this is a story I actually honestly never thought I'd tell. I thought this was always going to be a the back of my notes to ver to justify why I am giving black women power and agency in every one of my books, because that that was a question. Um, you know, people when I early on started writing, they didn't believe black people were part of the regency, and then when they realized okay they were, then they all they had to only be enslaved. And then it was a fight to say, okay, well, maybe there's some of them had businesses and they, but they were definitely middle class and they never intermingled with the upper crust. And then you bring stories of boxers who were partying with Prince, with uh, the Prince of Wales. Uh, you, you millionaires who made their money delivering coal to rich people because rich people don't like to touch coal. <laughs> uh, you, you bring these stories and then once again, you, you get a story like Dorothy Kerwin Thomas, true story, her love affairs with the prince. There's no level of agency you can tell me we did not reach. Uh, you can't say that and, and be believable, but that was the way the world was thinking when I first started writing. So it's, it's great that we have moved there we're, we're, you know, and we're still moving. But when I found Dorothy, I didn't believe publishing would publish a book in this time frame solely focused on a black woman and her journeys through life. As fascinating as I found her story, I did not think that publishing was ready. I was pleasantly surprised because like I'm sitting, I have a pitch meeting with uh, Rachel Kahn, uh, uh, William Morrow, and I pitched this as uh, Prince William's mistress. So we would have Prince William, she was like, no, we have enough books on him. I was like, okay, let's go with the two Dorothys. Dorothea Bland in England, Dorothy Kerwin Thomas here in, uh, she's like, no, we've had enough of that. I want her story. She literally bought the story at the table because she was looking for a story. To, she, she wanted a story that focused, she was ready. She's been, she tells me she's been ready for a story. Uh, for a while, and she was looking for that right story. And this is a story of a Black woman during this time frame who defies all the odds, but yet she's human, she makes mistakes, and, but she perseveres. And she is able to save generational wealth in the end for all the women of color 
that are in Demerara. Um, it's it's a phenomenal story, all true. Even the the six six horse carriage pony ride in front of uh, Whitehall. That's all true. <laughs> wow, that's great. Uh, Dorothy did not leave a diary. Um, so you have to fill in the gaps. Okay. And so as a writer, you're filling in the gaps because you want a full narrative and there are going to be people like that. But the both kitties are, are real. Mm -hmm. Cells is real. Okay. Thomas yeah. is real. All those children. <laughs> um, the, 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 the people she did business with, these are all real people um, and found bits of their stories here, there and everywhere and was able to, to merge it into this narrative fascinating and you really do see through this one woman's story you just see that history and the experience through so many angles and like you say so many levels of agency um and you're right uh so it's interesting you mentioned um the murder of george floyd as being a you know a touchstone and um i just feel like one another thing that's happening there is that people you, you know, white people realized we have not heard the full story. There is so much we don't know and something is profoundly wrong. And I just find that, you know, you can see this in some, a lot of Austin readers with questions, just a hunger for knowing the stories and a hunger for the questions, which is a good thing. Um, but the caution should probably be tempered <laughs> because we've had these cultural transformations before. But hopefully I, I, I wrote an article over the summer. Um, the Austin Museum was updating some of the, for the Washington Post, um, the Washington Museum, uh, they were updating the museum so that it would be yes. more culturally, um, you know, talking of the time period. And there was this big uproar. Daily Mail wrote something and, and everybody was like, you know, ready to take their pitchforks out. And you look back at Austin herself, and I believe she would want the clarifications. Mm -hmm. She wrote it in this manner. She didn't have to include the little tidbits we get about Antigua. She didn't have to have Miss Lamb. She's, she's, she's in the story, but she's not the central character of the story. But she's putting these things in here so that we have clues to what she was thinking, what was going on in the world. And she would want that clarity because it shouldn't be sanitized or whitewashed out. Um, every time you have a cup of tea, that sugar lump that you're putting in, you are participating in the capital gains that are coming from the West Indies. Yes. You know, if she did not want people to be looking at this 205 years later, she sure left a lot, awful lot of breadcrumbs <laughs> for us to still be picking up. But you're right. I mean, I, I saw the reaction and the overreaction to the Jane Austen Museum. So when we say some people are hungry, some people have questions, other people don't want any questions. Um, and they talk about erasing history, when in fact, you know, not investigating these stories, not un unearthing these stories, that is what is erasing history. Her history has been erased. <laughs> this is this is uncovering history, expanding history, and which is what history is. And the other thing that helps us turn these stories on their head and turn our our preconceptions about what these lives should be on our head is Bridgerton itself. Uh, any thoughts on Bridgerton? I I, I loved it. Um, what people have to realize is it's not the book. The book is the foundation. 
but this is Shonda's creation, taking Juliet Quinn's wonderful, wonderful book um, and making it into this new world um, where people are able to be people without necessarily the baggage uh, of, a, of a complicated history, especially when you don't want to take the time to unpack a complicated history. Um, they're just telling stories and they're letting people play parts. And I think it was, it was wonderful. It was escapism. I mean, come on, we all needed it. We were shut-ins last Christmas. <laughs> we yes. all needed Bridgerton. Boy, did we. It arrived. Thank you, Julia. Thank you, Shonda, out there for saving the world. Ditto. In your own special ways. Yes. That was author Vanessa Riley talking with us here at the Austin Connection. Her latest work is Island Queen. It's been optioned for the screen by some of the creatives behind Bridgerton, director Julie Ann Robinson, actor and producer Adjua Ando, and also producer Victoria Fee. You can find more on this conversation at the Austin Connection at austinconnection.substack.com. It's a newsletter. You can sign up and conversations like these will drop right into your inbox. We'd love to see you there. It's free. All of our content is free and available to everyone. So please feel free to sign up and join us at austinconnection.substack.com. I'm Plain Jane. This is the Austin Connection. Stay well out there, stay safe, and stay in touch.